All right. I think we'll go ahead and get started. We may have some people trickle in here after we get started, but that's okay. Uh, we don't have a lot of time this afternoon, so I do want to get started. Let me pray for us before we jump into our material. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for sunshine and the signs of spring that are all around us. We thank you for the gift of life that you've given us, not just our physical life, but the spiritual life that you've given us in your son. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you would reveal yourself to us and make yourself known to us so that we could know you and love you and follow you. And we do just pray for your help today as we think about your word and what it means to, to hear from you and to know you and to handle your word correctly. We pray that you'd give us help by your spirit and just help us to think clearly. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if I haven't met you, my name is Trace. I'm the college pastor here at River, and I'm excited to be able to teach this class with you all. Um, principles for interpreting scripture. You should have received the syllabus in an email. Um, if you didn't receive it, let me know, and we'll try to get it to you uh, after today. But a couple of things I want to note here. Uh, there was some confusion about the time. We do start at 2.30, um, but the schedule, we're not going to run straight through four weeks because of Easter. So we're meeting today, then the next meeting will be two weeks from today, and we'll go the, the, the uh, 16th, 23rd, and 30th. There is a slight schedule change on the 30th, and I'll remind you of this when it gets closer, but on the 30th, we're going to start at 2.15, instead of 2.30, because we have a river members meeting at 4, and we want to make sure we can get through everything and kind of clear out in time for that meeting. So 2.15 on the last day on the 30th. A couple other things on the syllabus. Um, just, I think it's helpful to keep the course objectives in mind. What are our goals for this course? So here are the three course objectives. To develop a basic understanding of a theology of the Bible, as this is foundational to interpreting Scripture as Scripture. That's going to be our focus today. We're going to really just focus on developing a theology of the Bible. Second course objective is to grasp with greater depth the meaning of the Bible across barriers of time, culture, language, literary genre, etc. And then finally, uh, to write a paper. This is if you're, if you're not just auditing, but you're actually doing the reading and assignments. The assignment is to write a paper analyzing a portion of Scripture using the, the five steps that we're going to outline that are outlined in Grasping God's Word. So this is the textbook. Uh, if you're doing the reading and you haven't got a hold of this yet, it's Grasping God's Word by Duvall and Hayes. And even if you are just auditing and you want to read along, this is the book to get your hands on. So that kind of lays the groundwork for the syllabus. Like I said, today we're really just going to talk about developing a theology of the Bible. Before we talk about how to study the Bible, we have to take some time to discuss the Bible itself, because our view of the Bible is inevitably going to shape our approach to studying it, right? If we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then we're going to interpret it one way. If we believe the Bible contains some general truths about our life on earth, then we're going to interpret it another way. If we believe the Bible is a mythical story, we're going to interpret it a different way. And if we can't agree on what the Bible is, its character, its nature, 
and its purpose, then we are rarely, if ever, going to agree on how to interpret it. So before we jump into principles for interpreting scripture, which is what we're really going to focus on the last three classes, I want to spend some time this afternoon laying a foundation for those principles by talking about the Bible itself. So I want to give you today six core theological beliefs about the Bible. And I would encourage you to just memorize these, just to get them down. And in order to help you memorize them, I'm going to give you an acronym. And so I created a cheesy one for you, but maybe it will be memorable. Here is your your acronym, NCISIA, okay? So you might be familiar, famous crime syndicate, NCIS, now just imagine the, the Iowa cornfield version, okay? This is, uh, this is my cheesy or many, maybe corny acronym to help you remember this, okay? And I'll, I'll be silly for the sake of you remembering some really important information. So what I want to do this afternoon is to walk through this acronym and highlight these six core theological beliefs about the Bible. But I don't just want to tell you the theological beliefs. Since we're talking about interpreting the scripture in this class, I want us to help us see how these theological beliefs shape the way that we're going to do interpretation in the next three classes. So let's start looking at these beliefs. The first is the necessity of scripture. That's your in. The necessity of scripture. So in the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve had clear and direct fellowship with God, their creator. They heard from him, they spoke to him, they knew him, they walked with him, they enjoyed clear and direct fellowship with him. But that changed with the fall, didn't it? As a result of the fall, Adam and Eve were forced out of God's garden, and this clear and direct fellowship that they had had with him was lost. And not only that, but mankind became darkened in our heart and mind. We came, became blind to spiritual matters, right? No longer could we hear from God and speak to God and walk with God or know God in the way that we had before the fall. This clear and direct fellowship had been obstructed and obscured. So although we were able to know God in a general way, Romans 1 tells us that, that mankind is able to know about God in a very general way, we could not know the specifics about God. We couldn't know his personal nature, We couldn't know his character. We couldn't know what he wanted from from us or how to please him. And as a consequence of sin, we could not know these things unless God revealed them to us. And that's where we find the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture holds that it is necessary that God speak to us, that he reveal himself to us if we're going to know him in any sort of meaningful or salvific way. It was necessary that he speak. And because he desires to be known, he did speak. He spoke to and through a, selective group, a group of select individuals who recorded and collected his words in what we now call the Bible. So through the Bible... God tells us who he is, who we are, and about his plan to bring redemption and salvation to the world. He tells us what we need to know in order to please him and live in relationship with him. He tells us about our eternal future. And we simply couldn't know these things by fumbling around with a scientific method. 
right? In order for us to truly know God, it was necessary that he reveal himself to us. Wayne Gruden, theologian, you've maybe heard of him. He says, the necessity of scripture means that it is necessary to read the Bible or have someone tell us what is in the Bible if we are going to know God personally, have our sins forgiven, and know with certainty what God wants us to. The Apostle Paul speaks to this reality in Romans 10. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So all people every in the, everywhere in the world can look around at creation and know that there is some type of divine creator out there. A person can study the massive universe and know that there's a creative God behind it. They can study an Adam and know that there is a divine designer. But unless that person hears the self-revelation of God that he's given us through his word, they simply can't know God in a redemptive way. Right? That's the necessity of scripture. So what are the implications for us as we think about interpreting scripture? The first implication is, man, we ought to be grateful Grateful that the creator God, who was a mystery to us because of our sin, chose to speak and to reveal himself to us so that we might be restored to him, right? So we don't have to read the Bible, we get to read the Bible. And through it, we get to know God. We have a privilege of knowing what God has said. Second implication of the necessity of scripture is that it ought to make us sober, If the word of God is a necessary thing to bring light and life and salvation to a broken and dying world, and if we, the church, are the ones that God has entrusted with his word and commissioned to make it known across the world, we better take seriously the task of understanding, interpreting, and implying the scriptures as we go about our daily lives and as we share them with others. So having God's word is a great privilege, but it also comes with a great responsibility. And so I'm glad you're here for this class. So that's the N, necessity. Let's move on and talk about the C. C stands for clarity, the clarity of Scripture. So by affirming the clarity of Scripture, we affirm that the Scriptures are straightforward, that they're understandable, and that they're self-interpreting on all matters of importance. Grudem says, all things necessary to become a Christian, live as a Christian, and grow as a Christian are clear in Scripture. Now, here's the caveat. Any serious student of the Bible will have to confess to you that there are portions of the Scriptures that are notoriously difficult to understand and interpret. Right? Some parts of the Scriptures seem to be unclear. And this is why you see sincere Bible-believing Christians differing in their opinions on some second and third order theological issues. And sometimes this lack of clarity in the scriptures can be distressing to us. It can cause us to doubt the reliability of the scriptures in some way. Like, if God said this, why is it so confusing? Why do we all disagree about what God has actually said if it's clear? But this perceived lack of clarity at points isn't new. 
It's not a result of being so far removed from ancient times, as some people might say. It's not a result of you know, people redacting the scriptures or changing them over time. The reality is that even the apostles had to wrestle with what they felt like were lack of clarity about God's revelations at time. Read about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, right? A big debate. What is God saying? Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16. He says, some things in Paul's letters are hard to understand, right? The apostle Peter Peter had a hard time understanding some things in Paul's letters. So even the apostles at points wrestled with what they felt like was a lack of clarity. But here's the thing. We can acknowledge this reality that at points scripture is not super clear, at least from our perspective, and still in good conscience hold to the clarity of scripture. Because in general, the scriptures are clear. And when it comes to those things that are essential to becoming a Christian, to living as a Christian, and to growing as a Christian, we have clarity. And in parts of God's words that are unclear, we can be sure that it's not God speaking that is unclear, it's our understanding. So here's what the clarity of Scripture affirms in brief, that God did not speak to us in a secret code. Right? There's not some hidden spiritual knowledge that's necessary to decode the Bible. There's no Da Vinci Code. Okay, He's made it clear to us. And furthermore, we don't need a super spiritual mediator to read and interpret the Bible to us because God spoke to us in plain human language. Right? This is one of the key battles for the reformers to get the scriptures back into the hands of the people so that they could read and interpret it for themselves rather than relying on some spiritual mediators to do the interpreting for them. J.I. Packer says, all Christians have a right and a duty not only to learn from the church's heritage of faith, but also to interpret the scriptures for themselves. Why? Because we can. Because the scriptures are clear. So here's the implication for us as we think about interpretation. You can read, understand, apply, and marvel in the beauty and glory of God's word. You can. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have a mediator or an interpreter. I'm not going to teach you any mystical secrets in this class about reading and understanding the Bible because there aren't any. I'm just going to give you some basic tools and then you can do it. That's the goal, right? When you leave, you can do it. So that's necessity, clarity. Now we're going to move on to the I. The I stands for inspiration, the inspiration of the scriptures. Inspiration is the process by which God directed individuals incorporating their abilities and styles to produce his message to humankind. So we affirm that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are inspired writings of God. Millard Erickson says that inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the scripture writers that rendered their writings an accurate record of the revelation or that resulted in what they wrote actually being the word of God. So as you read the Old Testament, you see that select men spoke and wrote with the sincere belief that God was speaking through them. The prophets would often begin by saying, thus says the Lord. 
Right? They believed that they were delivering a message from God. And these weren't just guys who uh, people thought, who thought they were God while everyone else thought they were crazy. At least maybe not over time. Maybe initially, right, there were some people who thought, you're crazy. But then over time, what they're saying starts coming true so that later on, the Jews are looking back saying, these men spoke from God. As you move into the New Testament, you discover that Jesus' disciples continue to believe in this inspiration of the ancient Jewish writings. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, all scripture is breathed out by God. And we have to remember that the New Testament canon, as we understand it today, had not been completed at that point. So when he's referring to scripture, when Peter and Paul are referring to scripture, they're referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament authors also consistently quoted the Old Testament as being an authoritative prophetic announcement from God that pointed forward to Jesus. Right? And Jesus himself quoted the Old Testament passages and used them in authoritative ways. He made it clear in his Sermon on the Mount that he wasn't coming to abolish the law or the prophets he wasn't coming to do away with them. He was coming to fulfill them. And Jesus continued to use Old Testament writings to make his own theological arguments. And what's especially important for us, if you look in Matthew 22, what's especially important for us to note is that Jesus made theological arguments for major doctrines like the resurrection and his messianic nature based upon minute Old Testament details like verb tenses and pronouns. Okay, so Jesus didn't just think that the big idea of the Old Testament is inspired by God. He believed that even the selection of the verb tenses, even the, the actual pronouns were chosen as being inspired by God. All right, that God delivered down to the minute details to communicate what he wanted to communicate. So what about the New Testament? Right? Did the New Testament authors think that they were actually writing down authoritative, inspired revelation from God as they were writing the Gospels or the letters? Well, Peter and Paul both seem to affirm as much. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. And in 1 Timothy 5.15, Paul quotes Luke chapter 10, verse 7. He's quoting a Gospel, which would have been in circulation at that point, and he calls it Scripture. So there was some self-understanding among the apostles that they were pinning further inspired revelation from God. And the early church emphatically affirmed this idea that both the Old and New Testament writings were inspired by God. Now, when we say that these writings were inspired, we're stating that they are the actual words of God. However, since God chose to communicate these words through human authors, there is a human element to the scriptures as well. J.I. Packer says, in a manner comparable only to the deeper mystery of the incarnation, the Bible is both fully human and fully divine. 
You see that the word that we read is a reflection of the incarnation and deity of Jesus that we serve. So in some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit's influence directed human authors to the exact selection of words to communicate God's message, but this influence of the Holy Spirit didn't eliminate or override the personalities, the backgrounds, the vocabularies, or the writing styles of the original authors. So each of the authors maintained these uniquely individual attributes while they were communicating to the word in the original autographs what God intended them to communicate, which is why you can see different vocabularies, different writing styles, different concepts in Paul than you can in Peter or Luke or Matthew. And yet they're all the inspired words of God. So here are the implications for us as we approach the Bible. One, again, we're to do it with humility and with reverence and with great care, knowing that these are the very words of God that he has spoken to us. Two, We want to do it with precision because we believe that each word that we find there, so long as it's transcribed and translated correctly from the original original writings, each word we find there is the very word of God. And third, we approach the Bible with the expectation that the living God can and will speak to us through his living word that we can discover and be transformed by the transcendent truths that are bound up in this book because God has spoken them. So we've covered the N, the C, and the I. What was the N? Somebody give it to me. Necessity. Necessity. And what is necessity? In your own terms, just briefly. We need a God to reveal himself. We need a God to reveal himself. Otherwise, we couldn't know. Okay. The C? Clarity. Clarity. Somebody clarity in your own words? Common person can understand Right. The common person can understand it. And the I here is? And in your own words? Perfect. Down to the minute details. Okay, so we got the N, the C, the I. Now let's talk about the S. S stands for sufficiency the sufficiency of Scripture. So what we mean by sufficiency is that these clear and inspired writings are sufficient to supply all that's lacking in view of their necessity. Or to put it differently, that God's word fills the gap between what we can know of him generally in creation and what we must know of him in order to be saved and to live in right relationship with him. So God's divine act and his divine word as they're recorded in the scripture are able to make a person wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. But not only does God's word make us wise unto justification, it also tells us everything that we need to, to know to continue to grow in sanctification as we hope in glorification. So Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete 
and equipped for every good work. The word of God will equip you for every good work. It is capable of that. So through the Bible, God tells us everything that we need to know in order to be restored to fellowship with him, to walk in fellowship with him, and to move toward the eternal destiny that we have in him. If God thought it necessary for us to know, he put it in his word. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible tells us everything we want to know about everything. Right? It doesn't. You're aware that the Bible is silent on a great many issues. But here's what we mean when we say that it's sufficient. We mean that it absolutely and completely accomplishes God's purpose in revealing himself to us. And here's the crucial point to remember as we consider the sufficiency of scripture, that God's goal in speaking to us was restored relationship. His goal in speaking to us was restored relationship. And because his goal was restored relationship, he filtered his communication through that purpose. Right? He wasn't speaking to grow the field of general human knowledge. Otherwise, he would have given us a tome of textbooks about physics and math and genetics, all these things that to this day we still don't understand. Right? But that wasn't his goal. His aim was relationship. And so he didn't include details about physics and math and genetics because they weren't central to his purpose. We all do that when we communicate. We, commu we filter our communication through our purpose in communicating. So he spoke about some things and then he re remained silent on others because his chief intention was to reveal his personal nature, his character, and matters that were significant for our faith. And his word tells us all that he intends to tell us. So here's the implication as we think about interpreting the Bible. First, we look to the Bible as our first and final authority about the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of salvation, the nature of eternity, and the nature of right living. We may study mathematics or genetics or engineering or sociology and learn a great deal about the way atoms or people or societies work and relate to one another and we filter the but we filter the information we discover through the word of god not vice versa we always look to scripture to guide our thinking and decision making okay let's talk about the next eye the next I stands for inerrancy. Miller Erickson writes, Inerrancy is the doctrine that the Bible is fully truthful in all of its teachings. Inerrancy is the doctrine that the Bible is fully truthful in all of its teachings. This is the claim that the Bible makes about itself. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The church has, from its inception, held that all of Scripture, in its original autographs, 
and properly interpreted is completely true and without error in all that it affirms, whether that be doctrine or moral conduct or history or cosmology or geography or anything else. At its heart, our belief in inerrancy, the inerrancy of Scripture is rooted in our belief about God. So this belief about the inerrancy of Scripture doesn't just flow from what the Bible says about itself. It's, it flows from what the Bible says about the nature of God. And this leads to a really important principle of interpretation for us. So, so listen in here. We believe in one God who is all-knowing, who is unified, who is truthful, who is coherent. An all-knowing, unified, truthful, and coherent God cannot speak in ignorant, contradictory, deceptive, or illogical ways. Therefore, the words that he has spoken will accurately reflect the reality that he has made and they will not contradict one another. So this web of beliefs comes together to form the doctrine of inerrancy. And it also undergirds this important principle that we'll talk about moving forward in the class. It's sometimes called the analogy of faith. Okay, and the analogy of faith proposes that because each book of the inspired scripture proceeded from the same divine mind, that the collective teachings of Scripture will be complementary and self-consistent, that the Scripture will not contradict itself. So prior to the 17th century, the doctrine of inerrancy was largely unchallenged in the church. But since the 17th century, the doctrine of inerrancy has come under significant attack. So starting in the 17th century, heretical movements began to develop within Christianity that allowed for minor errors in certain portions of Scripture, most notably in the recording of historical events, genealogies, or descriptions of science and nature. And this movement coincided with, with the scientific revolution and the introduction of, a field of, of, the, of the field of biblical criticism, which is a, a field of study which sought to apply this scientific methodical system of human reason in critical study of the Bible. So often, though, in the 17th century, as this was developing, this biblical criticism, the assumption of the people who were, were doing this biblical criticism was that human reason stands over Scripture and judges Scripture. So biblical criticism often adopted a cynical and faithless practice of biblical study and interpretation. And this field of study grew through the 18th century and the 19th century. And scholars began pointing to what they thought were perceived contradictions within the Bible or perceived contradictions between the Bible and modern scientific theories. And these people claimed that the Bible was marred with human errors and was therefore untrustworthy, either in part or in full. And as a result, some Christians in the 19th and 20th centuries felt pressure to accommodate their view of inerrancy to the theories that were being proposed by these biblical critics. And what emerged were new theories or new proposals about the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. So one of the views that developed was that the Bible contained a divine core of authentic, inspired teachings, but that those teachings had been mixed together with inauthentic human additions 
that were untrustworthy and uninspired. Therefore, people who held this theory went on a search to find the authentic portions of the scripture and to separate them out from the fake mythological portions of scripture that had been added by men, so they said. Other groups adjusted their view of revelation to claim that the Bible is not actually the divine revelation of God, but it's a tool that can lead to a divine encounter, which is where true divine revelation is experienced. I know that's a little tricky, but here's what they believed. They believed that God's revelation was not here, that God's revelation could not be held in one's hand, that God's revelation could only be experienced, and this was just a tool that we could use to get to the revelation of God that we might experience. Okay, it's kind of a nuanced view, but they're adjusting their view of inerrancy and inspiration. Other groups chose to believe in the Bible's authority to speak to spiritual matters and to Christian doctrine, but they backed away from the idea that the Bible was truthful in its recording of issues like science and history and geography and genealogy. And with these adapted views came more liberal reformulations of the doctrine of the Bible by guys like Karl Barth. And they were reformulations that deviated from the church's long held belief in the inerrancy of scripture. So you have all this happening, 17th, 18th, 19th century, and then in response to all of this, you have over 200 distinguished evangelical scholars from various denominations who met in Chicago in 1978 to draft and sign a document that upheld the traditional understanding of the inerrancy of scripture against more liberal conceptions that had been developing. So it's called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. It's free, widely available on the internet. If you want to go check it out, if you're curious, you can go just look it up and read it. It contains 19 articles which address and respond to the specific uh, theologically liberal adaptations to the traditional idea of inerrancy. So here's how we think about some of these perceived contradictions. We can't ignore them, first of all. We can't ignore that there may be some perceived contradictions between Scripture, what it's saying and here and what it's saying there, or what it's saying about science, what we know about science today, and what the scientists are saying. We're not going to ignore the perceived contradictions, but we have to remember that they're perceived contradictions. And we can carefully and honestly work through these issues while resting comfortably with the doctrine of inerrancy. And Christians have been doing this, honest, intelligent Christians have been doing this for 500 years. So here are the implications for how we approach the Bible. First, we approach the scriptures trusting and believing that they contain truthful and accurate information, that they contain the word of God down to the gritty details. So we don't come to the scriptures to try to correct them. We come to the scriptures so they can correct us. And we let the scriptures speak with authority to the contemporary theories of science and history. And when we discover an apparent inconsistency or an apparent contradiction, we're free to explore those. But we do so not with the assumption that the scriptures are wrong, but with the assumption that 
maybe we've misread the scriptures. Maybe the contemporary scientific or historical theories are wrong and they'll change in another hundred years. Or maybe we're still lacking important information that's necessary to draw a clear conclusion. And we can do all of this while resting comfortably with the doctrine of inerrancy. Okay, let's talk about our last letter in the acronym. A stands for the authority of Scripture. To believe that the Bible is authoritative is to believe that the Bible, as the expression of God's will to us, possesses the right supremely to define what we are to believe and how we are to live. The written word correctly interpreted is the objective basis of our authority. And what you may have begun to see at this point as we're talking about these different doctrines of the Bible is that they're all interwoven. They're kind of like a, a tapestry that gets woven together rather than being their own distinct doctrines. They all overlap to some degree. For example, our belief in the Bible's authority is informed by our belief in its inspiration and its inerrancy. Because we believe the Bible contains the very words of God, because we believe that it is fully truthful in all of its teachings, we give it the supreme right to define what we're to believe and how we're to live. So we believe that all our ideas about God should be measured, tested, and where necessary corrected and enlarged by reference to biblical teaching. So the Bible doesn't just have authority over what we think or what we believe, but also how we live our lives, how we make decisions day to day. James writes, but be doers of the words and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So here's the implication for the authority of Scripture as we think about interpretation. We approach not with a posture to impose ourselves on the Bible, but to have the Bible imposed upon ourselves. We approach it not to master it according to our will. We approach it in order that we might be mastered by it according to God's will. We approach it willing to be corrected and assuming that we are often by our sinful intuition wrong and that we have by our immersion in a fallen world mindlessly adopted some beliefs, some values, and some actions that need to be changed. So these are the six core theological beliefs about the Bible and their corresponding implications for how we approach studying the Bible. So let's review them again. What's the first in? Necessity, okay. The C? Clarity. The I? Inspiration. The S? Okay, what's sufficiency mean? I heard somebody. It's enough. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay, the second I? Inerrancy. And inerrancy means? Fully truthful in all that it teaches. Okay, and the A is? Authority. And authority means? It does mean authority. What's that? Yeah. We submit ourselves to the Bible. We don't try to submit the Bible to ourselves. Right. So, these are the six core beliefs about the Bible. 
And like I said before, if we don't agree on these core beliefs about the Bible, it's going to be nearly impossible for us to have a cohesive conversation about how to interpret it. And so while we're talking about the Bible this afternoon, I do want to address two other common questions that get asked about the Bible. One has to do with uh, canon, and the other has to do with translations. So let's talk about canon first. One question you might have is, who decided that these 66 books are the ones to which we apply these six theological beliefs? And then you may ask because you know that Roman Catholics include more books in their canon of scripture. Or you've heard about other early writings like the Gospel of Thomas or something like that. And you're wondering, why is that book not included and these other books are included? And this is a question about canon. And canon comes from the Greek word that originally referred to a rod that was used for measuring straightness. But it was later adopted by the church to refer to the collection of books that were considered to be inspired and thus authoritative. Here's what you need to know just briefly about the Old Testament canon. The Old Testament canon was established as the Jewish canon by about 200 B.C., so about 200 years before Jesus was even born, the Jews were saying, this is our canon. These are our inspired writings. And then from 200 BC to 180, that's a 300 year span there, overlaps with Jesus' life, other Jewish theological works were written during that period. And though these books were widely read and circulated and respected in Jewish synagogues, they were never widely accepted by Jews as being inspired as being authoritative, like the other writings of the Torah. Right? They were considered to be useful for encouragement or edification, but they weren't authoritative for doctrine in the Jewish mind, which is why they are never included in the Jewish Torah. Okay, the books of the Jewish Torah are identical to the, the books of the Protestant Old Testament. They're in different order, but they include the same books. So here's what happened. There were a series of unfortunate historical events starting in the 5th century through which these Jewish apocryphal writings, as they're sometimes called, were progressively lumped together with those books, books which were considered to be authoritative for doctrine. And as a corrective, the Protestant reformers, when they broke from the Catholic Church in the 1500s, removed the apocryphal books from their canon. And then the Catholic Church responded by declaring these apocryphal books to be part of their Bible, part of the true Bible for the true church. So they kind of doubled down, but the reformers removed these Bibles. So this is how, removed these, these books. So this is how Catholics and Protestants came to have different canons of scripture. And these differences in canon lead to some significant differences in doctrine. For example, Catholic doctrines of purgatory, praying for the dead, and praying to the saints all come from these apocryphal books, which we don't think are, are authoritative for teaching doctrine. So the next question of these supposedly early Christian writings is uh, the question of writings that were being written around the time the New Testament was being written, like the Gospel of Thomas. So the New Testament canon, it was developing as Christianity was going through the first century, but... By the end of the first century, all four of the gospel accounts, 
the book of Acts and all the letters of Paul were considered to be authoritative, inspired writings by the early church. So within a hundred years, the church is saying the four gospel accounts, the book of Acts and all of Paul's letters definitely inspired and authoritative. And then the process for coming to an agreement on the other books of the New Testament, which, which would be Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation, took a little bit longer. But the 27 books that we have in our New Testament today were widely accepted as inspired and authoritative by the late 4th century, so before the year 400. Here's what happened. During this time that these other books are being considered, is this inspired, is this authoritative, there were several other Christian writings that were being evaluated as well. And ultimately, the church decided that some of these writings, like the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, and the Epistle of Barnabas, they were going to put them in this category of being edifying but not authoritative. Right? So there were some other writings that happened during that time. The church says, these are, these are good for encouragement, but they're not authoritative for doctrine. So you have a category of these writings that fall there. And then there's some other works, like the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, which the early church said, now nah, these are heretical books, right? So there's kind of two categories of these early writings. Some that the church says clearly, no, these are heretical, Gnostic writings, and some other books that the church says, these could be encouraging for believers, but they're not, they shouldn't be included in our New Testament Bible. And some of these Gnostic writings, the heretical ones, have received a lot of attention in the past 50 years. Some people claim that these writings were originally part of the canon, but then later they got deleted, and that they may be actually more true than the books that are in our canon, but that's just not true, right? The books were late creations when compared to most other New Testament writings, and they were never deleted from canon because they were never a part of the canon to begin with. So that's just a quick overview of, of how we landed on our 66 books that are in our Bible today. Next, I want to talk about transmission and translation. Uh, this maybe is a little nerdy. I love talking about this stuff. Maybe you're going to be bored to death, but I think it's important to know there was quite a process to get this Bible. The Bible you pull off your shelf every morning and read has been in the works for thousands of years, and so many people have been committed to translating it and transmitting it, copying it and copying it so that you could have it today. So I want you to just know a little bit about that. So one of the common questions that people ask about the Bible is why do we have so many different English translations of the Bible? Right? Can't we just have one? And which of all these translations is a trustworthy one? And what's the difference between them? So we're going to talk about it a little bit. So earlier, as we talked about the six core beliefs about the Bible... I mentioned, if you picked up on it, that our belief in the inspiration and inerrancy applies to the original autographs of Scripture properly interpreted. So what do I mean by original autographs? What I mean is that those initial parchments on which the prophets and apostles wrote or the clay tablets for Moses that those initial parchments or tablets that were written thousands of years ago were inspired by God but those original autographs have gone through quite a process to take the form of the Bible that we now hold in our hands 
And the first process that the autographs underwent was transmission. Now, transmission is the process by which skilled scribes accurately copied and distributed copies of these original autographs. So we started with an original parchment that Paul was writing on for say, but then there was a need for that parchment to be copied so that it could be distributed to the other churches so that it could be spread around to the other Christians around the world. So this, this process of copying began and eventually the original autograph it wore out or got destroyed somehow. And what remained were these copies that skilled scribes continued to make for generation after generation. So for centuries you have these scribes preserving these copies as best they can through this process of transmission. So every time we open our Bible, we are indebted to thousands of unnamed faithful scribes who gave their lives to just preserve accurate copies of the scriptures for us. We're indebted to archaeologists who have uncovered ancient manuscripts that have helped us shed light on our copies so that we can be sure that the copy that we have today is pretty darn close to the copy they were reading 2,000 years ago. We're indebted to scientists who have used this technique called textual criticism to recreate the original autographs with a great deal of confidence. And all of this work comes together to create what are called our modern critical texts. So here's your modern critical text. This is the the Old Testament. It's a mouthful. Most people just call it the BHS. And this is your New Testament. It's another mouthful. Most people just call it the, the NTG. So here's what a critical text is. In a critical text, the scholars have taken all of the information we have about autographs, dating back to as as long ago as we know, and have compiled to the best of their information to recreate something that is as close as possible to what we believe the original autographs would have been. So we have today... Our critical texts. Now, our critical texts are in Greek and in Hebrew, right? Because the original autographs, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. So our, our critical texts are in Hebrew and Greek. So this is where we switch from transmission to translation, because most of us don't speak Hebrew and Greek myself included. So we can't read that unless somebody's going to translate it for us. So here's, let me show you uh, an image here. This is in Grasping God's Word, but this shows the big, the big uh, process that the scriptures go through to get into our hands. That first part there is inspiration. You see God delivering his message to the human author and that human author writing out the original text of scripture. That's where inspiration ends. And then you have transmission. You have that original text or scripture being made into copies, right? And that was happening for thousands of years. And now our modern scholars have taken all these different copies we have, ancient copies, and put them together into a critical text, which is what we have right up here. Now, our translators or our translation committees are what they're doing is they're taking this critical, these critical texts and they're creating for us an English translation. 
so that you and I can read it, even if we don't read Hebrew and Greek. Now, here's why we end up with so many different translations. Because there's a lot of challenge <laughs> in translating. Here are some of the challenges to translation. First of all, uh, languages do not often share identical words. So, for example, if you read through the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew word called a goel. And a goel in the Hebrew world was a man who was legally able to redeem his close male relative's wife in order to bring up sons for the deceased lineage. Right? That is not a modern American concept. In fact, that's pretty weird to us. Right? But, but the Hebrew language, there's a word for that. So then the question is, how do we translate that concept into an English word that, that Americans are going to understand? Right? And people are going to say, well, maybe we should use redeemer. That's what the ESV uses. NIV says a guardian redeemer. The CSB says a family redeemer. The KJV says a near kinsman. Right? So all of these, the heart is, how do we take this phrase and put it into a word or an idea that the modern American reader can understand. Not always easy. Second challenge, vocabulary of the two languages vary in size. So both the Hebrew and the Greek, for example, this is an example, they both have a way to communicate the second person plural, right? So there's a word that they can use that means you all, basically. We don't have one of those, right? Unless we say y'all or something like that, but that's not a proper English, so they're not going to put that in their translation, right? So, so here's the thing. You can read through your, your English New Testament, and you see you. That could be a plural you. In fact, it probably is a plural you. But they have to figure out how do we try to get this into English so people understand, because our, our languages vary in size. Third, that the languages put words together differently to form phrases and clauses and sentences. So in English, we have a pretty straightforward grammar that always follows a pretty simple pattern, right? We've got the, the subject, the verb, and the object, and we pretty much always follow that. Well, in Greek, you can put the, order, the words in pretty much whatever order you want to put them in, and you know what's what by different endings that get attached, right? So, so if you try to take a Greek sentence and translate it into English, it will not make any sense. You have to rearrange the words to get it to make sense. Hebrew, they put the verb before the subject. So the Hebrews would say, um, killed the dog, the cat, right? The dog is the subject, the cat's the object. But they say the verb first, right? So, so you start to see some of the challenges with translation. And so here's what translation committees do. They come up with a philosophy of translation. There are a couple of big uh, philosophies that you'll see. I'll put them up there. So one philosophy they might have is a, a philosophy of formal interpretation or a literal word-for-word -word translation. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to maintain as much they can the structure of the original language. Even though, like I told you in Greek, sometimes the structure doesn't come out in English sounding very good. But they're saying we're going to leave the structure as much we can and let the read English reader figure it out. And then on the other side, you have a functional philosophy, which is the idea of we're going to translate that we're going to take the Greek, the thought in Greek, and we're going to translate it into a thought 
in English. So what they're emphasizing is getting the original meaning into an understandable modern form. So their idea is if we translate the Greek and try to keep the form, no one's going to understand it because it gets wordy and it's out of order. And so why do that? We want to make this readable for people. So let's just take the thought and give them a thought in English, right? So there's some different philosophies that develop and all of this happens along a spectrum. You know, you have some, some on the, the far formal side, you can see them there, King James, uh, New American Standard, ESV are on the more formal side. And then you have the more functional side, which would be the message, which, by the way, the message is a paraphrase. What you should know about a paraphrase is it's really just, it's an interpretation. Right? It's not so much a translation as it is an interpretation. And then in the middle, you have something like the NIV, where they're really trying to balance this formal and functional philosophy of translation. So let me just say this. There is no perfect translation. However, we should acknowledge that when it comes to seriously studying the Bible, not all translations are created equal. So let me give you some principles for choosing a translation. <clears throat> the first is choose a translation that uses modern English, something that's been published in the last 50 years. English changes over time. So use something that's really, uh, relatively recent. Second, use one that uses what is considered to be today the, the strongest critical text. And I'll just say King James and New King James don't use what is today considered to be the best critical text. Third, uh, give preference to a translation by a committee over a translation by an individual. So some translations will be uh, translations that a single guy came up with himself. Some of them will be a group of people who got together and worked together to come up with a translation. I would just say use one that was put together by a committee when you can, okay? Because there's some account uh, academic accountability there to one another. And then lastly, I would say choose a translation that's appropriate for your purpose or time. So if you're uh, preparing to, to preach a sermon or to lead a Bible study, you might use a different version than you would if you were going to read with an international student who doesn't speak English very well, or if you're just having a devotional, right? So uh, think about your purpose. And the other thing you can do is just read multiple versions of the same passage. You'll get an idea of what it's about. All of this to say, I know sometimes you can think about all this and you think, man, this is, this is really eroding at my confidence in the scripture because it's so complex, maybe then affirming it. I will just tell you that I have, I have, um, I studied Hebrew and Greek in seminary and part of my assignment as I was taking Hebrew was to translate all of Jonah and all of Ruth from the Hebrew into English with two other guys. And we put hours and hours and hours of work into this translation and we finished with it and guess what? Pretty much what the ESV said the whole time. So, so I say that to give you confidence. Like me, I, I have a lot more confidence uh, going through it than I did before that. Just, you know, people are, are really skilled. God has given us scholars and really intelligent people. And I'm really thankful for them because, man, translation is, is hard work. Okay, we're going to keep moving on here. Um, so we're going to kind of shift gears. We've talked about some theological beliefs about the Bible. We've talked about uh, canon, transmission, translation. Now I want to shift to start talking about more about interpretation. 
And so one of the things I want to talk about here is kind of our fundamental paradigm about who controls the meaning of a text. So how many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? You live in Kansas. You better have seen The Wizard of Oz. Okay. What's The Wizard of Oz about? Here's, the, here's your IMDb synopsis. Young Dorothy Gale and her dog Toto are swept away by a tornado from their Kansas farm to the magical land of Oz and embark on a quest with three new friends to see the wizard who can return her to her home and fulfill the other's wishes. So, it's a fun little kid story, right? <laughs> Has anyone read the book? Okay. So, here's what you need to know about the book. There are some key differences between the book and the movie. And one of the key differences is that in the book, Dorothy's shoes are silver. They're not red. Now, is that a significant detail? Well, if we begin to dig into the details, we find that L. Frank Baum, who is the author of the book, he published his book in 1900 at a time when one of the hottest political debates was whether the U.S. should continue to use the gold standard as its basis for the dollar or whether they should switch to the silver standard for the basis of the dollar. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Dorothy and her friends follow a path to Oz, don't they? What's the path made of? It's a yellow brick road. So they follow the yellow brick road to Oz, and what happens when they get to Oz? They find out that Oz is a phony and a fake. And what does Dorothy use to get back home? Her silver shoes in the book. So a little more digging reveals that The Wizard of Oz was the first movie to be filmed using Technicolor, which is this brand new technology. And in order to make Dorothy's shoes stand out more, the production company thought it would be silly to have bland old silver shoes, so they decided to make them red. So here's the question. What is The Wizard of Oz about? Right? Is it, a, is it a fun children's story about working together with your friends to overcome adversity? Or is it political satire about the supremacy of the silver standard? How you answer that question is important, especially when we start to think about interpretation. The question is, who controls the meaning? And we have two basic possibilities. Either the audience controls the meaning, or the author controls the meaning. Either The Wizard of Oz is about whatever we want it to be about, or it's about what L. Frank Baum intended it to be about. And the position that locates meaning primarily with the reader is called the reader response position. And the position that locates the meaning primarily with the author is called authorial intention. And the position that we adopt will dramatically change how we interpret the Wizard of Oz. But this belief about the locus of meaning doesn't just apply to the Wizard of Oz, it applies to our interpretation of the scriptures as well. And when it comes to interpreting the scriptures, we hold firmly to the position of authorial intention, that the locus of any given text 
resides in what the author intended it to say and not what we want to hear. And we reach this interpretive decision because of those six core theological beliefs that we just talked about. So for time's sake, we're going to keep moving. Um, Here's what this means in practice when we start to sit down and study and interpret the Bible. That we don't ask, what does this passage mean to me? I think maybe I've used that question in a Bible study a long time ago. What does this passage mean to you? It's not a good question. The good question is, what does this passage mean? Period. And then how does this passage apply to you? Because there's one meaning, and then there's multiple applications based on the meaning. So here's what we've just done with all this talk about, well, the author controls the meaning, not the reader. Here's what we've done. We have created a lot of work for ourselves. Because I don't know about you, but I've never met Moses, never met Isaiah, Paul. They lived thousands of years ago, completely different culture, spoke a different language, a very different background from my own. So how am I supposed to know what they meant to say? It's going to take a lot of work. And we're going to talk about a process in the next three classes that get to this work and how it can be done. But before we finish, there's one more thing I want to talk about briefly. This is in chapter 7 of the textbook, if you've read it, but... I want to talk about what we bring to the text. It's possible that one of the most dangerous barriers, I just talked about some of the barriers, 3,000 years, different culture, different language, all these things that seem overwhelmingly difficult, but I'm here to tell you that one of the most difficult and dangerous barriers to properly interpreting the Bible is ourselves. In all the contextual study that we're going to do over the next three weeks, The context that will be easiest for you and me to miss is our personal internal context. You see, as much as we we might try, we rarely approach the scriptures completely objectively. Instead, we often approach the scriptures with preconceived ideas and influences that can infiltrate and sabotage sound interpretation. So we tend to fill gaps in scripture with explanations that make sense to us based on our culture or our previous experience. And this is called pre-understanding. And each of us has a unique pre-understanding that's going to include our preconceived ideas and understandings from our family, from our culture, our experiences. And sometimes they're just going to be subconscious. We're not even going to realize that they're there, but they're going to sabotage our interpretation if we're not careful. So let me give you four types of potentially dangerous pre-understanding that we're going to need to be aware of to do interpretation. The first is a philosophical, theological, or social agenda. For example, um, you might say, well, I'm a Calvinist, or I'm an Arminianist." Or I'm a dispensationalist. Or I have certain eschatological perspective that I'm trying to, to protect here. Or for some people, it's, well, I, I have an LGBTQ plus agenda. Or I have a feminist agenda. Or I have a naturalistic agenda. 
And I've got to protect that agenda as I read through the scriptures. Anytime we come to the scriptures, looking for it to support our existing perspective, we are in danger of interpreting it incorrectly because of our own personal bias. So what we have to do is we need to be curious about the Bible. We need to be curious about passages of scripture that challenge our pre-existing ideas. Not suspicious. Some people are suspicious, right? Ooh, well, that, I don't believe that. Well, well, why don't you believe that? What does the Bible say? What does this passage mean? Are you understanding it correctly? Right? We can't overlook or misinterpret passages in order to present, protect our existing cognitive or theological schemes. We have to be intellectually honest. And in order to do that, we have to be aware of our own pre-understanding, our own philosophical, theological, social agendas that might be operating underneath the surface. Second dangerous form of pre-understanding is familiarity, right? We all have passages which we've read dozens if not hundreds of times and we get to those passages and we go, yep, got it, got it. Read this plenty of times before, right? I'm, I'm good, just, I know what this means, move on, right? There is, a, there is a component of being familiar with the Bible that will help you in interpretation, but you have to be careful not to allow your familiarity to inform your interpretation or to, to make you not do interpretation, right? Avoid the temptation to say, I'm familiar, I don't need to think about it. Third is culture. Our culture is one of the most powerful yet subtle aspects of our pre-understanding. And our culture is a combination of our family and national heritage. It includes language, customs, stories, movies, jokes, literature, national habits, other things. And we don't often see or recognize or acknowledge our cultural baggage when it comes to the scripture. Often it's just assumed, kind of subconsciously assumed. And sometimes what we discover is that it's really tightly held. Right? We have grown up believing this. This is what our family did. This is who our family is. This is what our country did. This is who our country is. Right? And sometimes those things are really hard to let go of. So my culture has informed at least my imagination of Scripture, right? As I read through passages, my imagination, at the very least, is filling in the blanks with my cultural experience. So what we have to be pass uh, uh, protect ourselves from is coming to passages about things like sexuality and gender roles, coming to passages about the role of government, coming to passages about money and wealth, right? These human autonomy, these 21st century American ideals, the American dream. We have to be willing to submit ourselves to what God has said and be aware of ways that our culture is informing our interpretation. Fourth, I would just say family background. Most of the values, ideas, images that you have, you inherited from your family of origin. Ideas about work, money, uh, ideas about the poor, ideas about marriage and sex, politics, ideas about how do you relate to people who aren't followers of Jesus, right? All these things are informed by our family. My family highly emphasized work, right? Subconsciously, the message I received was growing up was when you work hard, you're valuable and you're lovable and respectable, but when you don't work hard, you're not those things, Right? I don't know if my parents ever said that to me, but that was the message that I got. 
Just growing up in my Western Kansas, pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture, right? Grace was really hard for me to understand. Something that I really have to work to believe. So we all have these unhealthy forms of pre-understanding, and we just need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be willing to be honest with ourselves as we read and interpret the scriptures, and we need to ask God for grace to help us see where what we have been believing is not lining up with what he's saying. So in just a couple minutes, I just want to give you a flyover of the process that we're going to use over the next three weeks as we start actually interpreting things together. So the next three weeks is going to be much more interactive. So two weeks from now, we're going to, look, we're going to talk about some principles for interpreting the Gospels, and we're going to interpret a parable together. We're going to do it together. You're going to have time to reflect. What's the text say? We're going to talk about it. What's the principle here? So it's going to be much more interactive, and we're going to walk through this interpretive journey. But I just want to highlight it to you so you're maybe a little bit familiar with it when we show up two weeks from now. The, uh, the process that they use in Duval and Hayes is called the interpretive journey. And it's this five-step process. And I'm just going to use this image and, and help you just briefly see it. The first on the left there, you see the number one. The first step is grasping the text in their town. So this is the work of going back into the time and place when this text was written, thinking about who wrote this, who were they writing it to, what was the situation, what are the historical and cultural factors surrounding this writing, and just trying to understand what did the original author mean. We're not doing any interpretation. We're just trying to figure out what did the original author mean mean that's step one step two is going to be identifying the river of differences okay you see the number two there the river of differences you see culture language time and situation these are all things that separate our town from their town and make interpretation difficult so the second step is to just identify what are the things in the river of differences and how do we think about those as we start to move toward interpretation. Step three there, you see the principalizing bridge. So step three is to take, what did the text mean in their town? And how do we build a biblical principle that identifies and acknowledges the differences and yet is able to connect with our town? So this is where the interpretation part really happens in step three. Step four is consult the biblical map. You see the little guy there looking at the map. Consulting the biblical map is where we're really going to exercise that analogy of faith that I talked about, right? That the scriptures are coherent. So we're saying, I grasped this text in their town. I came up with a biblical principle, but now I need to check to make sure that my principle lines up with everything else the scripture is saying about this issue or this thing. Because the scripture is going to line up. Scripture is going to interpret itself. And then the fifth is where we do the application. And it's applying to our town. So this is the process, the image and the process that you're going to get very familiar with over the next three weeks. We're going to work through it together as we think about um, interpreting the scriptures together.